As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Jill Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe... Um, You know, eight times a year, markets kind of go through this ritual where we have policymakers from the Federal Reserve meeting to discuss U.S. monetary policy. And today is actually one of those days. Yeah, so I'm partial to Jobs Day every month, Non-Farm Payrolls Day, (laughs) first Friday of every month is my favorite day. You know, it's like the Super Bowl 12 times a year. It's my favorite day. But in terms of excitement, the next closest day for me has to be obviously the eight times a year that the Fed meets and decides what it's going to do with (laughs) uh, monetary policy. And we're recording this on um, today is June 15th. So it's a Federal Reserve Day. We're recording it before the decision. So we don't know what's going to come after. But uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Federal Reserve and monetary policy, but from a slightly uh, broader perspective. Right. So you know what happens on Fed days, right? Everyone goes kind of nuts. We have all the economists piling in, making their predictions, and then analyzing what actually happens. We have investors who are potentially repositioning their portfolios, analysts, the media. It's all anyone can ever talk about. But was this always the case, or was this degree of Fed watching you know, something relatively new that happened only in the past few years. We are going to speak with one of our all-time favorite Fed watchers to discuss. We are here with Tim Dewey. He's a professor at the University of Oregon. He writes a fantastic blog basically devoted to watching the Fed, and Tim is in studio with us, so uh, welcome, Tim Dewey. Well, thank you very much for having me today. It's a great day in New York, and I'm uh, having a great time. Thank you. So let's talk about the beginning. Right now, or let's take it from the beginning, because we know that Fed Day is this huge, essentially, market holiday, and there's everyone tries to pick apart the Fed statement and look at every word and try to figure out what it means and the dots and the press conference. But was it always like that? It has become more involved over time. I started doing this back in the late 1990s. Uh, and at that point in time, it was it was still a big deal, but it wasn't the circus that it is today, especially because we didn't have 
statements that were usually as as extensive. Um, we didn't have a press conference to work with, uh, and I think that the over the 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 period that I've been looking at it, well, another issue is that the monetary policy has become such a more important part mm. of the economy as we've transitioned away from you know less and less using fiscal policy as a uh, as a stabilization tool well, a lot of more emphasis has been put on the federal reserve as a uh, as a stabilizer uh, for for economic activity so you know, over that period of time i think definitely yes we have seen much much more interest um, uh, in the subject and was there a moment where you kind of realized to yourself that Fed watching had become a thing? Uh, maybe when I started doing it as a job <laughs> uh, was the uh, was the time I thought it became a thing. You know, uh, again, because I've been doing it for, for for quite a while, I've been able to see it build and evolve over time. And so for me, there was no one sharp break that it became much more uh, um, interesting. Although I would say that during the financial crisis, uh, it certainly rose in prominence a great deal because it wasn't then just about interest rates. That's when you you went down the road of the alphabet soup of, of lending facilities to help ease the financial crisis, for example. You went down the realm of quantitative easing. Uh, so, so the nature of the game did change, I think, dramatically at that point, became somewhat more complex complex too when you did more direct forward guidance uh, to the markets. And so sometime within the last, you know, since the financial crisis, I do think there has been a market increase in uh, the attention that we give to the Federal Reserve. And, and a lot of that's just due to the, the broader scope of the activities it, it's engaged in. So let's get down to specifics. You mentioned, uh, you know, the actual Fed statements are longer today than they used to be. There's more words in them than there are all these follow on things. Uh, when you first started off, obviously, there weren't press conferences. What do you see as having been the most significant changes to the job of watching the Fed over the time? And what do you make of those changes? Have they been for the better or worse? Generally, I think they've been for the better. Uh, a couple big changes. When I started doing this, Alan Greenspan was was the chair. And it was a, I felt that was a very different environment in, in a number of respects, one of which is I thought really had to pay much more attention to the governors, which were speaking more frequently. Plus, you had to recognize that, that Alan Greenspan was having a very large driving influence mm -hmm. on the direction of policy. So in some sense, that made, made it a little bit easier. I know that there's this view that Alan Greenspan is – fairly opaque mm -hmm. uh, to understand, but it made it easier in the fact in the in the idea that you only had one person you had to understand. Uh, and so so that was something we lived with for quite a while. And that's something that I think has changed uh, quite dramatically since the Bernanke Fed uh, and the Yellen Fed is that we do have a lot more speaking on the part of this president's uh, there seems to be a lot more influence from some presidents than, than maybe I'd sensed in the past. Uh, and, you know, another issue is that we don't have as many governors talking mm. as, as part of that's because we haven't had as many governors. It's been understaffed for, for, for quite some time. We don't seem to have the, 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 the governor speaking as much as they used to about policy. And that, I think, is something that is um, that's something that's lost. I very much value that that core of the committee coming public on a frequent basis with their views uh, as a guiding direction for the uh, for, for policy. And so what to what do you attribute that flip? So just for those who aren't familiar with it, 
the presidents are the presidents of the regional Federal Reserve banks. The governors are in D.C. As you said, it used to be the governors talked more. Now we hear a lot more from the presidents. When did that change, and why is that? It seemed that it changed. For me, what I started to recognize it was sometime between that transition between the the, the Greenspan's Fed and the, the Bernanke mm-hmm. Fed, where I thought that really that that voice from from the um, governors was becoming much much more distant. And why did that happen? I think that the governors now do not necessarily view that as as important part of their job as maybe the governors did in the past. Uh, that that public outreach um, aspect of it is something in some sense they seem to be leaving to many of the Fed presidents rather than mm-hmm. taking it on the, on themselves. Uh, it might also be because they don't want to seem as to be guiding policy as you know, in the open as much as maybe they are in the background. So it sounds like you have this cacophony of Fed voices now. You also have a sort of a balance of power lacking in the form of the governors. You have all these new monetary stimulus measures that were announced since the crisis. FOMC statements are getting longer. Does that make the job of Fed watching more difficult? And what can you do to try to cut through all that noise nowadays? I do think it makes the the job more difficult. Like I said earlier, when we just had Alan Greenspan to worry about, that that made it, I think, much easier. But now you really do have to look at each speech, look at each president, and see if they are making statements that are reasonably consistent with the rest of the group. Mm. And if they're not reasonably consistent, you have to then decide, is this something we should just throw out? Or is this something that's going to be a, uh, you know, the, the way of the future, right? a, a change in policy? And it takes a lot of work to go through these speeches on a regular basis and understand where everybody is positioned. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I think, a, an increasingly large challenge for for for. Fed watching in general, and may involve that may reflect some of the um, confusion that that market participants seem to have about what does the Fed really think, what is the Fed's fundamental re- reaction function, because we're having a hard time piecing it together from all the individual talks. Right. I mean, that's sort of like this big picture question, because obviously the Fed communicates in all these new ways. So there's a press conference. And there wasn't one before. And there's the dot plot. And that's an innovation. And um, then there's all this talk. But it still doesn't feel as though the market or anybody really knows what the Fed cares about, what its target, what, it, what as, you, as uh, people put it, its reaction function. So does that mean that it's not accomplishing all this extra communication that it's not accomplishing what it's supposed to? I think Joe's trying to ask nicely if you think the Fed's communication is effective. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, I think it's... Or counter-effective. In right. a, or like, that not just not effective, but that all uh, all these things explicitly designed to improve clarity are having the opposite effect. Well, that's... The, the the problem is the more you try to clarify what you don't know, the more it's revealed that you don't really know what the future is. And I think that's what we've been falling into is these intense efforts of clarification really um, uh, are revealing that the Fed doesn't have as much better idea about the future as any of us. And uh, I like to think that creates 
a more real environment in some sense where we recognize that uh, what 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 the Fed thinks they're going to do and what they actually do are very different things because they don't really know what the economy is going to do. Right. And it's very difficult to, uh, in, in that environment, when they're actually being much more open about that, to say, okay, here's what they said. Why aren't they doing what they said? Well, you really have to go backwards right. and say what's going on in the, in the economy that, that pulls it together. So um, has this made it less uh, effective of a communication strategy? It depends what their ultimate goal is, right? If the ultimate goal of the communication strategy was to you know, make it clear where interest rates are going to be, it's not particularly effective because they can't know it that in advance. And uh, efforts to try to pretend like they know it in advance have not been very effective. And so that's where I think the communication strategy really kind of falls apart is mm -hmm. when they sort of insinuate that they have a very good idea of where interest rates are going to be and, and they can't get there. But uh, and so another possible goal or actually arguably the real goal of the Fed is to have full employment and stable prices. And so, sure, sometimes market participants might complain. It's like, oh, we don't know what the Fed is going to do. But perhaps that shouldn't be the measure by which we judge the Fed and we should measure them. And, you know, unemployment rate has come down a lot since the financial crisis and arguably inflate, uh, prices have been quite stable. So judged by those metrics, maybe it's all working. That's that's, I think, an excellent point is what do we expect the Federal Reserve to do? Well, it's not necessarily to hold our hands through right. every Fed meeting. We expect the Federal Reserve to deliver on its mandates of stable prices and full employment. And to the extent that we're moving in that direction um, quite well in, in many metrics, by many metrics, uh, is, is really a sign of success for the institution. And the fact that maybe we don't always get what the next interest rate um, call is going to be, we don't always get that right, that's not necessarily a problem for the Fed. Um, or for the economy as a whole. It's certainly a problem for, you know, maybe market participants that, that, that have to worry about that. But that's not what we should be caring about as an eventual outcome of the Fed. Tim, uh, we haven't actually talked about this much, but you are based in Oregon, whereas the vast majority of Fed watchers are mm. usually on the East Coast. Um, does that influence the way you work at all or how you analyze the central bank? Well, I think it has two two advantages. One is most of the news or a lot of news will come out at 8.30 in the morning when these data points are released. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm just rolling out of bed at, at that point because it's 5.30 on the West Coast. Uh, and the advantage there is that I'm not forced to be instant pundit quite as much. Mm -hmm. I get to digest maybe the information for a little bit longer before I'm able to comment or think about it. Um, another advantage is being outside the fray a little bit where I can take maybe a different perspective than, uh, you know, than I, I'm not getting this sort of, I'm not fed with the chatter, constant chatter in the background that might be influencing uh, the way we sort of turn into groupthink, right? We, we, we start to develop a, a groupthink if we're all you know, talking about the same thing a lot. And I get pulled away from that because I'm not as um, uh, engaged or exposed to you know, that, that, that aspect of, of the job. So I think those are two advantages. The, the disadvantage is just being a little bit further away from, from, the, um, from the action uh, and not having quite as much of that um, uh, constant day-to-day -day, uh, chatter in the background. 
Here's another question. Tracy and I, as anyone who's listened to this podcast for a long time, have a real soft spot for bloggers uh, and people who have made a name for themselves in a different route. I started following you because of your blog and, you know, this um, resource that exists outside of most media institutions that produces such a top-notch work. Uh, how significant has that been for you in your career uh, to have built this outlet that people come to in, you know, in terms of making a name for yourself? For me, it's been very significant. Uh, I was very, very lucky uh, to be able to really re-engage in this, this policy debate after moving back to Oregon. I think it would have been very, very difficult to to end up back in this position had I not had the outlet of the blog. Uh, and for that, I thank uh, you know, my fellow blogger, Mark Toma, mm-hmm. uh, for starting his Economist View blog and, and me being able to uh, write on that. So I have a question. The more we talk about Fed watching, the more I kind of get this vision of a bunch of economists with binoculars, like looking at the central bank, like the way bird watchers kind of look at birds. What's been the most exciting bit of Fed watching? What was the most exciting day for you? You've done this for many, many years now. There has to be one that kind of sticks out in your mind. Wow, there's so many that stick out over the years. Like uh, the the uh, the financial crisis, there were so many days in there where we just had no idea what the Fed was going to do next. Um, and and so that was that was certainly a very exciting part point of time. Um, last last fall, when uh, Governor Lyle Brainerd started coming on uh, the scene much more aggressively, hmm. uh, worrying about the international aspects, though it was a very exciting time for me in, in, in recent history of just something very different going on at the Fed that people weren't paying attention to. Uh, so, so in recent history, that's that. Um, in in past history or in in during the financial crisis, there were so many days of you know we're going to cut rates fifty basis points out out of nowhere that really resonate um, in my mind. So it's a hard question for me, Tracy, because there's so many of these things that that really stick in my memory now as being really prominent days in I don't want to say my life, but <laughs> in uh, this let's, business. Let's bring it forward to the current era of sort of the Fed and central banking. I feel we're at this point. I mean, people have been critical of world central banks quite a bit since the financial crisis. But of late, we're seeing negative interest rates, the sort of novel policy tool at more and more central banks around the world. We're seeing more and more people call for the Fed to assume a quasi-fiscal role, uh, ex- whether it's explicitly funding uh, monetization of government spending. It feels like we're at sort of this crossroads or we're at this point where people are questioning whether the traditional tools as we knew them of central banks are up to the task. How do you feel about some of these big debates? It does, do central banks need to rethink their role in the world economy and what they can do in order to help the economy grow faster and have stable prices and all that? Right. Central banks are already really engaged in in that process because it's not about just interest rates anymore. For so many years, it was just 
25 basis points up, 25 basis points down, something like that that was really guiding the general direction of financial markets and economies. Uh, we don't have that world anymore, right? So many countries, our economies are near or at the zero bound or below it that they do have to be engaged in uh, different ways of thinking. And that's where we saw what's where quantitative easing came mm -hmm. from, for example, uh, that we see in 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 number of central banks. Uh, we see a very aggressive um, actions on the Bank of Japan. Uh, and one interesting one interesting thing, though, is that certainly maybe some of these, which we would thought in the past would have been just crazy, you know, super aggressive policies, have not always yielded quite the aggressive uh, impacts that we would have thought. And that, I think, is showing you something about the limits of monetary policy. I know that there's essentially two camps on this. One is that monetary policy just needs to get easier, right? We, mm -hmm. we need to push into negative rates more deeply. We need more quantitative easing. We need better um, forward guidance. And that's really the key. Uh, but the other camp, I think, is, is realistic here in that there's, there's uh, a real need for fiscal policy that is more coordinated with the monetary policy. Right. It's 2016, and you still have persistent shortfalls of inflation targets pretty much everywhere in the world, despite mm -hmm. the fact that you know we've had this QE and all or in several places tools which at the time they were announced seemed very radical and people thought it would be dramatic. So where do you fall on this? Uh, do you think that the industry, I guess, really does require a rethink about how powerful it is, how powerful its tools can be? I think that that's correct. It does have to uh, rethink that. And I think it has rethought that. Um, and you see central bankers oftentimes saying, well, we could really use some more help from fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly saw that during the, the during the recession, where, where then uh, Gov uh, uh, Chair Bernanke would, would, would say, you know, we could use some help, more help here. And would that have been <laughs> unthinkable in, say, the late 90s for... Uh, for a, cent a cent major central banker to say, oh, we need more Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that in the late 1990s or that period of time, they would have been much more confident of their ability to mm -hmm. guide the economy into a, a stable equilibrium path, essentially. And they should then leave fiscal policy to do what fiscal policymakers are supposed to do, which is consider or decide what the size of the government is going to be, right, right, essentially. And that was a fairly easy distinction to make when you're operating, you know, at, at, at an an acceptable um, uh, level of output uh, for the economy. Now, I think it's much harder to make that case. Uh, and it's certainly going to be harder to make that case if we go into this next recession with interest rates close to zero already. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to be pushed right back into a realm of, of quantitative easing very quickly. Uh, and I think there's going to be quite a bit of discomfort around that. Uh, Congress was never really thrilled about the policy to begin with. Uh, right. And so, you know, I think, you know, we're in a zone, too, where, where central bankers are very cautious about being too much of fiscal policymakers. And they'd really like that job to be back, taken back over by um, uh, the, 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 the fiscal side of the, the equation. But fiscal policymakers have been hesitant to do so because, quite frankly, you need to rethink about how damaging debt and deficits are. Right. Uh, and that's really holding back some of this debate. 
I don't want to leave our listeners thinking about the impotence of central bank policies and uh, the debt overhang and all these uh, quite sad and intractable problems facing our financial system. So, Tim, maybe just to finish off, um, what are your best tips for people who are watching the Fed or who want to uh, improve their Fed watching game, so to speak? So the best tips, um, I think the, the, the most important thing is to remember that it's not about what you would do as a policymaker. It's about what the Fed is going to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to remove your own personal biases from your analysis and your research. You really have to think about, well, if I'm Janet Yellen, I'm Lyle Brainerd, or I'm you know uh, a Fed president, how am I going to react to this data? Uh, not how myself would react to this data or what you know, I, I think inflation should be or should not be. So I think that's the number one um, trap that people fall into when they're doing Fed watching is they start to think the Fed should do what they think they should do. And that's not, that's not going to be a productive um, uh, avenue at all uh, to, uh, to work with. So I think that's important. Um, then the next thing is, is, is along those lines, pay attention to what they say and how they read the data and again, don't try to say that they're reading it wrong or right um, when it comes to making that final con- final decision about where you think they're going to be headed. Uh, and so, so those are the 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 best tips that I can give uh, as far as you know, really what makes I think a, a successful Fed watcher. All right. Well, on that note, um, you know, thank you very much for joining us and telling us about the history of your profession. And I don't think that the Fed uh, is going to become any less important anytime soon. I think no. Fed days are going to be huge days for uh, as long as we can imagine. And so this will be this is a very useful stuff to keep in mind. Yeah, there's definite job security here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much, uh, Tim Doy, the University of Oregon. Uh, well, Tracy, I I feel like I'm going to go back and listen to this episode several times in the future because uh, it just seems this the Fed is going to continue to play such a central role in the economy and markets that understanding uh, all this stuff is not going to go out of stock. <laughs> no, I think that's uh, one thing we can say for sure. Um, the thing that struck me the most was that even for a seasoned central bank watcher like Tim is the idea that we really are in kind of uncharted territory, uh, getting close to negative rates, lots of talk about fiscal stimulus. No one really knows what's going to happen in a few months' time, a few years' time. So it seems like it could once again be very exciting days for Fed watchers. I agree. And then on that note, thanks everyone for listening to the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And also you can follow our guest Tim Doy on Twitter at Tim Doy. And you can find his stuff on Bloomberg.com and on his blog, Tim Dewey's Fed Watch. Thank you. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.